Welcome to History of Sydney, available on SoundCloud or iTunes. I'm Dr Robert Jones. And I'm Ilana Pender-Rose. 2015 marks the 100th anniversary of women in the Australian police force. So, to mark this occasion, we'll be looking at an early pioneer, Lillian May Armfield. on the 3rd of December 1884 in the southern highland town of Mittagong. The daughter of a labourer, she had a humble working class upbringing which set her apart from other early police women. Educated locally, Lillian was known to be an intelligent, capable student with high ideals. Described by her police interviewing officer in 1915 as a very capable, tactful and shrewd individual, Armfield had cultivated her compassionate philosophy during an eight-year career as a nurse working at the Hospital for the Insane, Callan Park, Sydney. Established during the late 1870s in the suburb of Lilyfield, Callan Park reflected a shift that was taking place in the way Australians regarded mental illness. Dr Jones, tell us a bit about this iconic institution and the impact it must have had on what would then have been a young, fairly inexperienced individual that was only at the beginning of her career. Okay, so if we consider the way in which mental illness was regarded in Australia, as indeed it was all over the Western world at the turn of the 19th century, as a kind of personality disorder or a deficiency of character, rather than an actual medical illness as such, it's easy to see why the early asylums seemed more like prisons than hospitals. Sydney gets its first asylum at Castle Hill in 1811, and it's here that the standards are set for the next half a century or so, with the treatment of inmates, which is what they effectively were rather than patients, amounting to little more than the application of physical restraint, isolation and control. The management of such facilities was custodial, in the sense that there was supervision and control without any real scientific or medical input by the staff involved. Humane care and the appointment of medically trained superintendents would come in time, but factors such as overcrowding quickly served to undermine the meagre progress that was made in this regard. Modern psychiatry, as we know it, has its origins in the second half of the 19th century, when people like Sigmund Freud, William James and others were making a name for themselves. And although it owed just as much to philosophy as it did to hard science at the time, there was still some groundbreaking work being done, I think. One of the lesser-known figures of the period, perhaps, was an American physician, Thomas Kirkbride, whose extensive experiences at the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane in the US led him to argue that mental illness was an affliction like any other, capable of being cured through a mixture of moral, humane treatment and medical care. Much of his work ends up finding following here in Australia, and one of his biggest advocates was a Sydney doctor called Frederick Norton Manning, who had begun his medical career in London and even served as a military surgeon in the British campaign against the Maori in New Zealand. Manning had already helped to bring much-needed change to an asylum in Gladesville during the late 1860s and 1870s, 
and he was appointed as the New South Wales Colony's first Inspector General of the Insane in 1876. In this role, he quickly sets about expanding the colony's meagre network of mental health hospitals, beginning with a recently acquired site at Callum Park in Lilyfield, working with the colonial architect James Barnett, whom you may recall was mentioned in last week's episode as the architect behind the famous mortuary station on Sydney's Rookwood Cemetery railway line, to produce a cluster of 20 neoclassical buildings, which they were to christen the Kirkbride Block, in honour of Manning's idol Thomas Kirkbride. This complex remained in service as a mental health facility until 1994, when it was consumed by the drive towards deinstitutionalised care, in which many patients were reintegrated into wider society. This, in a sense, represented the natural conclusion to a journey that had been begun by Kirkbride himself a century earlier to overcome the stigma of mental illness and to acknowledge the worthiness of those afflicted to be treated as equals rather than inferiors. All these ideas regarding equality and a regard for human decency had been slowly spilling over from the philosophical realm into the public imagination since the days of the Enlightenment, and they must certainly have impacted upon aspiring women like Lillian May Armfield, even in 1907 when she begins her role as a nurse at Callan Park. These were exceptional times for many industries and the usefulness of Australian society at this time made it an ideal place, I think, for challenging the conventions of the old order. The greatest example of this is, of course, the, the push the nation had made to federate itself and to thus establish a measure of independence from the outside world, particularly Britain. Dr Jones, can you give us some context as to what Australian society was like at the turn of the 20th century? I think as important as the progress being made at this time in fields such as medicine, education and technology undoubtedly were, they nevertheless only represent one side of what was a somewhat conflicted national ethos here in Australia. Uh, today we like to emphasise the more liberal aspects of our national heritage, the early push towards self-government and the enthusiasm with which democracy was taken up, the rise of a strong left-wing tradition and the speed with which universal suffrage is attained in comparison with other countries. But let us not forget that Australia was still a highly conservative country in many areas. The Federal Constitution of 1901 makes absolutely no provision for the rights of Indigenous Australians, and the White Australia policy introduced soon after Federation made it near impossible for non-Europeans to settle here. And now, the push towards gender equality still had a very long way to go. Let us not forget that Australian national identity, as it was then and still is today, is still overwhelmingly male-orientated. The image we like to portray of the typical Australian male is a kind of larrikin or rogue, tough but underprivileged. The struggle for women's rights might have been difficult in any land at this time, but I think in Australia it was facing obstacles that were just as much about identity and national representation of what it meant to be an Australian as they were about civil rights in and of themselves. In 1915, during the First World War, and shortly after the Australian Expeditionary Force landed at Gallipoli, Lillian May Armfield left her job as a nurse at Callum Park Hospital to apply for a newly established post of Special Constable in the New South Wales Police Force. She was favourably recommended by her former employer for her confidence and kindness to patients, and on the 1st of July 1915, she was accepted into the new position, becoming one of only two female police officers in the state and indeed in the country at that time. More would shortly follow with the appointment of Kate Cox and Annie Ross in South Australia six months later. The new policewomen had no uniforms at this time, were denied the use of police vehicles 
were restricted from carrying weapons and were still expected to work 60 hours a week, with only one week's holiday per year. Despite these sparse provisions, the positions had nevertheless attracted some 400 applications, suggesting significant interest in police work on the part of Australian women. Dr Jones, acknowledging their highly restricted status within the police force, just what was the thinking behind bringing women like Armfield into the law enforcement industry at this point? Was the fact that there was a war going on a factor? In a sense, yes, given the increasing number of men that would have been leaving their everyday jobs to enlist in the armed forces. But this is perhaps less of an issue here in Australia than it was in other countries like Britain, for example, during the First World War. In a more indirect sense, I think that wars of any sort have a knock-on effect of accelerating the kinds of changes in society that would otherwise have taken a lot longer. Technological advances, for example, are often given a significant boost in times of conflict due to the advantageous impacts they can have on a country's ability to wage war, giving them an edge over their foes. Uh, in the case of women coming into the Australian police force, I think it was a combination of vacancies opening up in the wake of increased male enlistment, coupled with the chaos of these uncertain times. Female police officers, we must remember, were not given the same status as their male counterparts, and indeed it's not until as late as the 1970s that a serious effort is made to equalise the role. The fact that the role of special constable, which is created for women like Armfield in 1915, is nearly always referred to in inverted commas, is I think highly indicative of the kind of patronising regard with which they were treated by many of their male superiors. Now, if we take another knock-on effect of war, the downturn in economies, the breakup of families due to death and maiming, and the general disorder into which society can quickly descend during a time of high crisis, then we get a practical reason for pursuing greater female involvement in the police force. Higher levels of vagrancy, prosecution, and the social ills that come from these times demanded skills and an approach that simply wasn't the forte of many male police officers during this period. The Inspector General of the New South Wales Police Force at this time, James Mitchell, felt that women might be more effective in arresting and dealing with their own kind. And in this respect, it was in social work that their role was focused rather than practical law enforcement. Armfield, we know, had the same powers of arrest as her male colleagues, although significantly, there was very little training provided with regard to self-defence and the kind of physical skills required to subdue anyone that attempted to resist arrest. I think even she, who was certainly not short on courage, recognised that discretion was the better part of valour when, having caught a cocaine runner, nicknamed Botany Mary, firmly in the act, she was forced to hitch up her skirts and run for her life when the perpetrator came after her with a red-hot flat iron. Much of her early work was purely preventative, that is, tracking down runaway girls, trying to preclude the involvement of women in organised crime, this sort of thing. Other countries with governments, as well as other Australian states at the time, may well have looked on with interest at what was still very much an experiment at this particular stage. I did come across one interesting newspaper snippet in preparing this episode with the heading Clairvoyance Sent to Jail, dated Saturday 13th of August 1921, which I think says a lot about the role that women like Armfield are expected to play at this early stage. A clairvoyant, Alfred Peter Ferguson, the article reads, was charged at Redfern Police Court today with having tried to impose on Lillian May Armfield, a special constable, by pretending to tell her fortune. The accused took the informant into a back room of his residence, pulled down the blind, and closing his eyes, went into a trance, during which he flung his arms around and told her she would marry a red-headed engineer in six months. 
This was a second conviction, and Bergson was sent to jail for three months. Now, as comical as I'm sure this appears to the modern reader, I think it's an offence which struck something of a chord with Armfield, who later returned to this theme in a piece that was published in the 1960s by the Sydney Morning Herald on the injustice of her lack of entitlement to a pension. Fortune tellers who preyed on relatives of servicemen during the war learnt to fear the tall policewoman, the article reads. They were arrested by the dozen, and Miss Armfield says of them now, they were not even good fortune tellers. I was told hundreds of times that I would marry, which she never did. Miss Armfield cannot foretell her future either, reads the article but it would be a lot happier for her if she had a pension. This is really an incredible piece, I think, given that here was an individual that had given over 30 years of her life to what was an incredibly demanding and, at times, incredibly dangerous profession, and who was denied a pension purely on the basis of her gender. It's made even more incredible by the fact that it's not until the late 1970s that something was actually done to address this imbalance, long after Armfield's death. Dr Jones, you mentioned policewomen being employed in South Australia at this time, as well as New South Wales. Were the other states keen to follow suit? How did experiences differ between states? Well, there's actually a surprising lack of scholarly material available to answer this question of experiences. There are, of course, several biographies out there on people like Armfield, and I believe there is a reasonably detailed study of the South Australian case. But there is still a heck of a lot more scholarly research that needs to be done on this subject. I know that many of the pre-existing and otherwise highly comprehensive histories with the Australian police force are let down by a noticeable lack of attention paid to the role of women. And this could have something to do with the numbers. In 1915, there were two special constables in New South Wales and two in South Australia. Victoria was fairly slow off the mark, appointing its first police agent in 1917 against the wishes of the Commissioner, Alfred George Sainsbury, who said that if women joined the force, trouble could be expected and the question of deciding who is the boss might soon have to be determined. Despite his objections, which were based on the erroneous assumption that lobbyists were all self-advertising, self-seeking women, the experiment proved to be just as much of a success in Victoria as in the other states. By the 1920s, policewomen's roles were expanding to include, among other things, locating brothels, illegal liquor outlets, abortionists, illegal dentists, and interestingly, Chinese herbalists, which were believed to be operating under false pretenses. By 1924, every state except Queensland had at least one policewoman. Victoria had four, South Australia 11, New South Wales four, Western Australia six, and Tasmania one. Upon being questioned about his lack of support for the initiative, the Queensland Commissioner, William Geoffrey Carhill, is alleged to have stated that, I think women police is a silly idea, and I have no time to consider the matter. In any event, I can assure you, we have enough old women in sufficient numbers in the police force already. Carhill was later to regret this remark, I think, when one of his critics brought a hat pin to bear on his horse, causing him to be thrown unceremoniously to the ground. Now, if we look at the backgrounds of early policewomen, we find that many of them came from service-orientated, middle-class backgrounds. Kay Cox, South Australia's first policewoman, for example, had been a school teacher and juvenile court probation officer. Many of them were previously members of non-conformist denominations such as the Salvation Army and the Methodist Church, and this implies a sense of moral obligation and duty, a kind of selfless service to the community. It certainly wasn't for love of career prospects, as we know. Lillian May Armfield's rise through the ranks was incredibly slow in relation to the laudable service she rendered. 
she became a Special Sergeant Third Class in 1923 and only attained the rank of Special Sergeant First Class 20 years later during the Second World War. The fact that there were so few positions for women in the police force meant that they had to be significantly more educated and credentialed than their male counterparts. It's only after World War II, when significant numbers of women were introduced to the police force as auxiliaries, that the drive towards equality really gets underway, in much the same way that those women working in other industries at the time. Even by 1971, though, when Armfield died, there are still less than 100 serving female police officers in New South Wales. The then Commissioner in New South Wales, and T.W. Allen, stated that her death had closed an era and that she was a pioneer and a pathfinder for present-day policewomen. She didn't receive a pension and would have been expected to quit had she married, which she never did. Up until the 1977 Anti-Discrimination Act finally brings a greater degree of equality to the sexes in the police force, she was the only serving female police officer in New South Wales to carry a gun. Though she is often credited with being the first female police officer in Australia, Lillian May Armfield's other great claim to fame lies in her involvement with the New South Wales Police Force's fight against the infamous Razor Gangs of Sydney between 1927 and 1932. Dr Jones, although we'll probably be returning to this topic in a later episode, could you give us a brief introduction? I believe this was one of Australia's most significant crime waves. Yes, well, we may as well begin with an event we touched upon in the last episode, the so-called Battle of Central Station, which occurred in 1916 and which resulted in a compulsory 6pm closing time for pubs in New South Wales, a significant win for the temperance movement. When we think of temperance in general and of organised crime, which is business the race gangs were in, we're inclined to think of prohibition in the United States, with the illegal trade of alcohol that went on there. And although alcohol was never banned outright here in Australia, we do begin to see the emergence of what has been called a sly grog trade during the 1920s. That is, of the illegal sale of alcohol after 6pm. With this scheme, of course, came other major rackets, including prostitution and a significant drug trade. And it's into this underbelly that Lillian May Armfield is thrown as a detective with a significant capacity for obtaining informants and tracing individuals that might otherwise not want to be found. The Great Depression of the 1920s brought a great deal of unemployment to Sydney, and this drives up the crime rate. And it's here that we see the emergence of the first major crime ring operating in and around Darlinghurst, or Razorhurst, as it was nicknamed. The adoption of the Razor as the gang's weapon of choice owed much to the Pistol Licensing Act of 1927 which prohibited any New South Welshman from carrying an unlicensed firearm. Although the passing of the Vagrancy Amendment Act of 1929, which prevents known criminals from associating with one another, together with the Crimes Amendments Act the following year, served to seriously undermine gang activity during the 1930s, it only really ceases with the coming of the Second World War. But these are events that we'll deal with in great detail further down the track. In 1946, Lillian May Armfield was awarded the King's Police and Fire Service Medal in recognition of her long and dedicated service to the New South Wales Police Force. Retiring in 1949 at the age of 65, she was next awarded the Imperial Service Medal for having been a civil servant within the Commonwealth for more than 25 years. In 1961, a biography of her life by the journalist Vince Kelly was published, quickly becoming a bestseller and in August 2011, Armfield was inducted into popular culture by the actress Lucy Wigmore, who portrayed the detective going head-to-head 
with Denise infamous Razor Gang during the 1920s and 30s in Underbelly Razor. Armfield herself lived her final years at a Methodist hostel in Leichhardt before passing away in Lewisham Hospital on the 26th of August 1971. She never married, had no children, and chose cremation rather than burial. This is History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Pender-Rose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. And we will see you next time.